tonight it's temples and holiness. So 1 Peter chapter 1, just a couple of verses which we'll come back to at the end. Um, But 1 Peter chapter 1 um, verses 15 and 16. Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And that quote uh, in verse 16 is a direct reference to Leviticus chapter 11. We'll come back to Leviticus a little bit later. But here we've got this kind of um, nod really to the fact that this isn't a new idea here. Uh, Be holy as I am holy is an old idea that's being reaffirmed here in this letter to the church. This is the call on the church to be holy as God is holy. Now, if I was to ask you to define what it means to be holy, I'm not sure what your answer would be. I was saying this morning that um, someone at some point over the course of the last two weeks at New Wine introduced Zach, our middle child, our eight-year-old boy, to the phrase holy cow. Um, which he decided to use in every opportunity, regardless of whether it was appropriate or not. So, Dad, holy cow the rain, um, holy cow the mud, holy cow the worship, holy cow that burger we had at the burger van, I mean, everything, holy cow. And that's like, that's not what holy means. Uh, my guess is if we went out into the street and did a little survey, went into a pub tonight and said, what does it mean to be holy? Most people would say something like, basically being a morally good person, like keeping the kind of rules that we intuitively as humans know probably should be there, which is why often we wake up feeling awful if we've had a bad night and we've pushed past some of the boundaries that God gives us. But actually the word for holy in the scriptures, the Hebrew word for holy is this word kodesh, Q-O-D-E-S-H, kodesh, and it literally means uh, something that is Uh, totally different and set apart, distinctively different and set apart, Uh, other than, something other than this, something that is actually so distinctly different that actually it it has its own category. So be holy means to be distinctively set apart. Uh, And we live in a culture that is profoundly unholy, right? In the sense of, uh, increasingly so actually, more and more homogenous, less and less distinctive wherever you go. Every high street's the same. Everyone's listening to the same music. Everyone's doing the same thing. I was in the leaders venue at New Wine, which is that kind of this um, space in the, right in the center of the site where church leaders can come and connect with each other and plug their phones in. And uh, we did a little survey of all the phones that were being charged. 90, 98% of them were Apple iPhones. It's just homogenous. Everyone's the same. Um, and actually, um, the call on the church is, is to be distinctively different to be set apart, to, to be different to culture, different from culture, not as a holy huddle, not a little group of people that are kind of run from culture in fear because it doesn't live the way God calls people to live, not that at all. Um, and, and that's the danger, isn't it, when we kind of start to think of ourselves as a people called to be different, is we, we, we retreat from culture. And parts of the church have done that still. There's still a fear of the culture around us. Ah, so you've got to protect your children from everything, you know. And so I, I remember when I mean this shows my age now, but I remember when Harry Potter came out. Like loads of the church, you can't let your kids read Harry Potter because it's about witchcraft and wizardry. It's like no, you know, it was just dysfunctional, I think, because they're brilliant books, and we all know that it's just story. 
And actually, great, my kids are reading it. It's a great way to teach them about good and evil. And I kind of point them in the direction of the scriptures and say, um, anyway, that's, that's to illustrate the point. Um, and, and when I first came to faith in 99, having grown up in a cathedral school environment, so it was chapel every morning, it's extraordinary to leave school having been to chapel every day but never heard about Jesus. Quite how they achieved that, <laughs> I don't know. Um, I don't think it was by design, but it's a terrifying thought. Um, uh, I remember coming to faith, joining the church, and, and after a while hearing this language of, we need to go out to the world. Did you ever hear that? It's like this kind of language of, it was an evangelistic heart, we need to go out to the world. Um, but I remember thinking, this is a bit odd, because you can't get out to something that you're in. <laughs> God's placed the church in the world to be distinctively different and holy, but not a holy huddle you know, defending itself against the culture around it, but actually is this distinctively different, holy community that, by the way, engages with the world around it, transforms it. So holy, yes, but servant-hearted, loving, uh, reaching out, blessing. And God's placed us, you and I, the church, in the world. So you can't get out to something that you're in. And what it reflected actually was some theology, which was that there's the church and then there's the world and that we, the church, need to go to the world and do something to it and drag the world into the church. Whereas actually our theological framework here, at least, would be, no, God's placed the church in the world because he's renewing all things, including everything on earth. And so the heavenly realms descend at the end of the story to reconnect with the earthly realm. and Everything will be made new. And so that's really important because when we think about being a holy people, it's not so that we, some, we do that by being uh, distinctly set apart uh, from culture uh, at the expense of serving it, hiding from it. That doesn't get you anywhere. Actually, it just makes you weird and cliquey and disconnected. Um, the other bit of language sometimes that we, we have kicking around is the church needs to be more culturally relevant. Have you ever heard that? Needs to be more culturally relevant. And I get that, but actually the, the gospel by definition means that we're never going to be culturally relevant. We're actually called to be counterculturally distinctive. And actually, we should, if we're really on our A game, the church, we should be creating culture for the world around us. And historically, if you know church history, that was the case. You know, at its, in, in its peak, uh, the church was, was the ones that, they were the ones that started education systems schools they're the ones that started hospitals it was monks that created beer for goodness sake i mean glory um art music it all came out of the church we created culture western civilization is was created by the church democracy the rule of law it's all from the church so we've got to get back onto our a game and go as as holy people called to be distinctly different it's unto the world it's for the sake of the world as we've just sung so uh, that's why it's the, the question isn't how do we be culturally relevant because by definition if that's the question you're asking you're already suggesting that you're behind the curve right trying to catch up we need to be confident to create godly culture and trust that that in and of itself is attractive so the question today really is what does it mean for us to be holy uh, but i want us to trace that thread from start to finish so that actually we get it in a new way um uh, this, this holiness thread, I guess I, I would suggest, begins right at the beginning. Um, God creates, and, and he's the creative force, isn't he, behind the whole universe. And, and so he's the only one with the power to make life 
and beautiful things. He's the only one that actually you can call these things into being. Um, These things make him unique and different and set apart. God, by definition, is holy. He's the source of power and life. Uh, the, The metaphor I often use to explain this is the sun. There's a picture of the sun coming up. There's the sun. Um, the sun is unique in our solar system at least Um, it's the source of life and power for our planet right without the sun we're doomed Uh, so you could say in a sense that the sun is holy in that it's distinctively different and set apart Uh, it's different to and different from the rest of our solar system and you could take the metaphor a bit further and say, well, the, the whole area around the sun is holy. And notice you see it spilling out, don't you? That kind of orange circle around the ball of light. Um, the closer you get to the sun, the more dangerous it is, the hotter it is, because it's powerful. And actually what you realize is that that same power that generates life and, and beauty and gives life to, to creation, it has the same potential to kill it as well. Some of you will know we used to live in New Zealand before we came back to England and when we first arrived we were given a briefing and we were told as kind of these pommy guys from England, what do they know? Basically there's no ozone layer over New Zealand. The hole that's been created by uh, greenhouse gases and all of that sort of stuff um, is over New Zealand and so every day regardless of time of year you'd put on sun cream and and you'd wear sunglasses because it's very bright the sun's very bright over there if you've ever been not all the time but most of the time and it just became a normal thing you put sun cream on if you didn't you would get skin cancer and your eyes would struggle you'd get you'd damage your eyes it was just normal everyone did it so so i was really weird everyone's walking around in sunglasses in the winter it's like this is what you got used to Uh, similarly then for us um the presence and the power and the holiness of God, a beautiful thing that gives life, actually if we get too close, um, it's dangerous to us. And this is the paradox at the heart of this this conversation really. Because um, you and I are not holy in and of ourselves. We're unholy. Uh, And as we draw close to the holiness of God, we realize that, don't we? Uh, Matt Redman says uh, that when we face up to the glory of God, we fall face down in worship. When we face up to the glory of God, we fall face down in worship because we see him in his glory and his perfection and his holiness and we realize that we're not that. But we were made for that. So right back at the beginning in the garden, if we were to deep dive into Genesis 1 and 2, we haven't got time tonight, we would, I would help, hopefully help you see that Adam and Eve, the first humans, were, were created by the holy God to bear his image, to be like him, to be holy as he is holy. <clears throat> they didn't have sin that denied and robbed them of perfection and holiness they were pure and holy unblemished human creatures bearing the full glory of Jesus uh, full glory of God in them and what Genesis tells us is that uh, God creates remember we did this uh, at the very beginning of Yobble we looked at the God's unfolding story and then we looked at this idea of the the kind of watery chaos the un uh, the unworked chaos of God's original creation the toho vohu do you remember that word it's not an, an island off Fiji it's a it's a theological term and God out of the toho vohu begins to create an ordered garden and actually what the theologians will tell you that's a garden temple 
It's a temple. It's the heaven-earth temple uh, in creation, uh, where the heavenly and earthly realms interlocked and overlapped and were in, you know, interacting with one another. And, and God and his people were in one, uh, one perfect relationship. And we know that because it says that Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. There was nothing that stopped them being in the full, glorious, holy presence of the Creator. Because they were holy as he was holy. They'd be made in his image. And tragically, sin strikes when Adam and Eve, when humanity decides it wants to have autonomy from God. It already has access to the tree of life, but they then eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there's no choice for God but to expel them from the garden because they can't have access to the tree of life and the knowledge of good and evil because they could live forever as gods in, uh, uh, ultimately at war with him. And there's only room for one God, ultimately. And so they're expelled from the garden. And from that very moment, there's a breakdown in relationship that's a problem for God. And he does everything he can to redeem that situation and ultimately does it in and through the person of Jesus Christ. Of course he does, because he made us in love for love. And it's a problem for him. Uh, and so he's working out through the rest of the scriptures a way for us to be able to access his holy, glorious presence yet again, once again. And so, so if any of you've got children, you'll know this, but even if you haven't, you'll know if you've got relationships with people that you love, when that relationship is in any way damaged or, or difficult, it grieves your heart, right? And you want to do something about it. Not, you can't always, <laughs> um, but that which you can do, you will do, right? For the sake of relationship, because that's, you know it's intuitively wrong. Well, God's the same. And so um, all the way through scripture then, from that point on, is this thread of redemption, God trying to bring harmony back to the relationship between him and his created image bearers. And various things happen, but I just want to highlight a few tonight. Uh, turn in your Bible to Exodus chapter 3. So Genesis into Exodus. Uh, we have this incredible story where uh, Moses uh, is minding his own business, walking along one day when he discovers this bush that looks like it's on fire looks like it's burning up, but it's actually not. And he realizes that it's the presence of God, the glorious, holy fire of God's presence on earth. It's a little moment where heaven and earth interlock and overlap in his life, in that moment. And uh, God tells Moses to take off his sandals uh, because he's standing on holy ground. Uh, notice, you'll see throughout the scriptures, this idea of taking off your shoes. It's holy ground. Even the seraphim, these crazy heavenly angelic creatures, it says they have shoes on. Even they have to take their shoes off when they're in holy places. And, and Moses covers his face in fear when this happens. Of course he does, because he knows, as a good Israelite, that you can't see God. You're not allowed to look at God. Because he's holy and we're not. And, and so, ah, he's, in, he's terrified. He knows that the presence of God could consume him. It could kill him. And actually God says in this little encounter with him, go and read it later if you're interested, don't come any closer. Don't come any closer. Don't get any closer because it will, it will consume you. But by God's grace, Moses is able to have this encounter with the presence of God in which God speaks to him and, uh, and assigns him something to do as part of the, the unfolding narrative. That intensity of God's holiness is explored even more if you look at the stories that weave their way through the rest of the Old Testament around this idea of temple. 
Uh, you have the tabernacle first, the kind of portable temple that God's people create. Remember on the journey through the wilderness, um, they follow a cloud of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. And whenever they stop, they put camp up and they had this tabernacle, this tent of meeting. In this tent of meeting is the tabernacle. It's the, it's the, point, it's the point where God's presence dwelt with them. Uh, and then eventually they build a proper stone temple and that gets destroyed so they build it again Uh, and each time in the temple there is this space and in the tabernacle this part of the setup that's called the holy of holies there's a slide for this card if you click on there it is and so if you see here this is solomon's temple so kind of a, a sort of a bird's eye view of the structure and we could spend hours on this it's fascinating but over here you've got the holy of holies it was a perfect cube it was, had no light in it, it was dark, and in it was the Ark of the Covenant, which is where um, the stone tablets that Moses is given on the sermon uh, on the mountain is put in there. There's a veil here, the curtain, the same curtain that's torn from top to bottom when Jesus is crucified um, to symbolize that God's presence is now long, no longer trapped in the Holy of Holies, right? We'll come back to that. Uh, to quote Bart Simpson, Jesus has left the building, and uh, or misquote him. Uh, so the Holy of Holies, this was the point... Uh, where on earth, where God's presence dwelt. So you have the whole temple, you have the temple courts and you came in and it got more and more kind of, uh, the further towards the Holy of Holies you went, the fewer and fewer people could go. The only person that could ever go in the Holy of Holies was the great high priest who once a year went in on behalf of the whole nation to put an an atoning sacrifice uh, before God for their sins. Um, And he would go in with a rope tied around his ankle in case something went wrong and they could pull him out, why? Because the presence of God is dangerous. Um, and the idea is that actually this temple is the, the building, the point on earth where heaven and earth interlock and overlap at this point in the story. And so when Solomon finishes dedic- building the temple, they dedicate it to God. All the priests are in there. They, they dedicate it. And what happens? The spirit is poured out, fills the Holy of Holies. And actually so much so that the entire, all that says all the priests are basically taken out. It's the first charismatic moment in the Bible and um, extraordinary. And so at the center of this temple is this holy place, the Holy of Holies. That's where God's presence dwelt. And so for the people of God who lived in and around there, there was very much an awareness that, you know, God's here. God's in the building. God's there. That's the point where you access God. And so you'd go on pilgrimage once a year to the temple to sacrifice, to make an atonement for your sin on behalf of um, uh, on behalf of yourself each year. And, and you, uh, you, but but the, here's the problem, that, that God's holy and they're not. So how did you do that? How did you enter into the temple courts? Well, uh, you have this system that God gives of what they call r- the, the ritual purity laws. So all the Old Testament laws around ritual purity are this mechanism to solve the problem that God's people have, God has also. God wants us to be in relationship with him. He wants us to be able to access his presence. He's holy, we're not. So he created this system of ritual purity. And essentially, what you had to do was fulfill the law, keep the law, do the right things, do the, certain, do the things that the law prescribed so that you could be considered ritually pure and enter into the presence of God. Because in those days, here's how it worked. Um, you were, by definition, uh, the default was you were unholy and impure unless you made atonement for your sins, unless you put, made yourself ritually pure. And, and, in, and, and here's the thing we have to get right. Often I think we, we look back and think, 
God saw them as sinful, and that was the problem. That was true, but that wasn't the problem. That wasn't the reason why they couldn't enter his presence. The reason they couldn't enter his presence is that his presence is about life and beauty and power and goodness. And actually, they were living in a world that was full of corruption and death and disease and decay, the anti-creation. And so that was the problem, because you can't bring death and, and that, that which represents death and decay into the, pl- the presence of God, which is the source of life and power. Um, and so... Um, the ritual purity laws were, yes, to atone for your sin, but also to cleanse you from that which made you impure as an image bearer of God. So if you touched people who were diseased, you were impure. If you touched the, de- the dead, you were impure. If you um, had certain bodily fluids, which were symptomatic of death and, and, and of, of the, the sinful nature of humanity at this point, they were all things that made you impure. And so here's what happened. You'd have these clear instructions. They're woven through the scriptures. They're long and dull and exhausting. And we look back and we think, oh, my life, what on earth was that about? But they helped you know whether you were impure and what to do about it, basically. But it was always so that God and his people could connect. That was the best solution they had at the time. It wasn't God trying to restrict access to him. It was God trying to facilitate access to him. Does that make sense? Really, really important to grasp that. And so you've got Leviticus and on, it's all there, and it's, you know, worth reading. If you're, if you're interested in more on this, go back and find Laura's talk, the beginning of the year on, on the law, which is extraordinary. Uh, it tells you more. Okay, so, so that's the kind of the backdrop to the rest of the Old Testament. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. So if you turn right and keep going, you get to Isaiah chapter 6. Um, I love Isaiah. Isaiah is one of the prophets raised up by God to um, tell the people of God, the Israelites, how they're meant to live. Now remember, if you know the story, God's people are called to be this distinctively set-apart community. Uh, God says to Abraham, I'll bless you to be a blessing. You are to be a light among the Gentiles, a light in the world. Sound familiar? Jesus takes that language and uses it for us. So the people of God were called to be holy as he is holy, not as this little holy huddle that retreated from the world, but this community of holiness that God used to bless the world. And of course, time and time again, they strayed from that calling. So Isaiah is raised up as a prophet to call them back to that. Before he starts doing that in Isaiah chapter 6, he has this crazy vision where he's in God's presence and he's terrified course he's terrified because he's a good Israelite. You get the pattern here? He knows that the presence of God could consume him because he in and of himself is not holy. He knows the rules. He shouldn't be there. But in this vision he has, this crazy sort of scenario, uh, this creature, a seraphim, we mentioned them earlier, heavenly creature, flies over with a hot coal, a burning hot coal, and sears his lips and says to him, your guilt is taken away. It's verse 8. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Something happens in this moment that begins to, uh, well, set us up for Jesus, actually. And you'll see in a moment how it makes sense. But things start to change at this point. God's doing a new thing as he seeks to find a long-term solution to the problem that God and his people cannot connect easily like they're meant to. as I've already said, up until this point, if you, uh, you couldn't go into the presence of God unless you'd made yourself ritually pure. You, the onus was on you to get right first and then in you go. But in this story, in this situation, here's what's happening. Rather than God, um, sort of rather than Isaiah touching something impure and having to make himself clean, 
God takes the initiative, finds Isaiah, who's unclean, and touches him and makes him clean. So God's starting to take the initiative rather than expecting us to take the initiative. This moment is really significant. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. God is starting to take the initiative. The implications for this are huge. Now, turn a bit further on to Ezekiel chapter, well, turn to 47, but really it's Ezekiel 39 right through to 47. Same thing is beginning to happen a bit more. God's doing a new thing and setting us up for Jesus. Ezekiel, again, a prophet, um, he has an even crazier vision. Um, he finds himself in this vision standing at the, in the temple and what he sees is water beginning to trickle out from it. Now remember the temple, it's where God dwells, the Holy of Holies, and he starts to see this, uh, in this vision, he starts to see a trickle of water flowing out of the temple in all directions. That turns into a stream and then it turns into a river. And that what we see in this vision is streams of living water flowing from the temple into the desert land all around it. And as the streams flow, the desert comes to life. And so in this vision, he sees streams flowing out and everything coming alive. Trees appear by the side of the river and it were told there for the healing of the nations. And actually, uh, everything around it, which is un unholy, broken, impure, starts to come to life in this vision. The valley of dry bones and all of that. Everything is like, it's a picture of what God's going to do. And um, we find that yeah, Ezekiel is essentially getting a glimpse of what will happen when Jesus comes. It's what theologians call the great reversal. Instead of... Uh, Again, having to first become pure and then going into the temple, God's holiness is now starting to flow from the temple to us. Taking the initiative. Rather than us being the ones that have to do the right things and then go, God is coming to us and doing it for us. It's extraordinary. And none of this really makes any sense unless you put Jesus in the picture which is why at the time they didn't really understand what was going on. Ezekiel was kind of considered to just be this nuts prophet. He thought, what is he on? It's only when Jesus comes and things start to happen that it all made sense to them. So let's bring in Jesus, center stage. Jesus comes, of course, and one of the things he does, among many things, is he claims that he was fulfilling all those ancient visions he talks about these sorts of things, but he's doing that in surprising new ways. So what does Jesus do? He's the Holy One sent by God. He doesn't hide in the temple. He could go into the Holy of Holies and hang out there. He could like have a seat there. You know, He's got access, all areas pass. He can go anywhere. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He moves towards the unholy, the broken to the least, the lost, the lonely, the outcast, the leper, the, the woman bleeding. He, he, he goes and touches, doesn't he? He touches, touches, touches. Hi. He takes the initiative. God is on the move. God is moving towards his creation in redemptive power. And, and rather than Jesus becoming ritually impure because he's touched something unholy and impure, they become holy and pure. It's what one theologian, Craig Blumberg, calls contagious holiness. There's this contagious holiness in Jesus that spills out. 
And so he takes the initiative. God's beginning to move from the temple into the world. His purity, his holiness transfers to them and he heals them. That's the fulfillment of the vision of Isaiah and Ezekiel. It's amazing, right? Furthermore, of course, Jesus says, I am the human embodiment of God's holiness. So actually, um, wherever he is, God is. Which is why he says, when he's asked by Matthew, I think it is, what about the temple? He says, look, don't worry about the temple. They can tear it down and I'll rebuild it in three days. It's outrageous statement. This is the temple. This is like holy ground. They're still fighting over it now. That's what the battle is in the Middle East. It's over the land where the temple was, among other things. That's a slight simplification. But essentially, that's it. And the tragedy is that, of course, God doesn't dwell in the holy of holies anymore. Well, he does, but a different one. So Jesus comes, and essentially what he's saying is, I'm the holy of holies now. I'm the temple. If you want to meet with me, you meet with God, you come to me. It's me. How do people know? Well, he touched them and they got healed. Streams of living water flowed from him. But notice what he says to the church, to his people. Over and over again in the Gospels in the New Testament, you'll see this idea that we, his followers, we, the people, the body of Christ, we now are his temple. So in Peter, it's this idea of living stones being put together, built into the house of God. We are the royal priests serving in that new heaven-earth temple made up of living stones, you and me. Why? Because Jesus says now, I filled you with my spirit. Pentecost is another dedication of a temple. This time it's not a stone temple made by Solomon and his friends where God fills that holy of holies. Pentecost is the dedication of the new heaven-earth church temple, you and I. And so God pours himself out upon uh, uh, Pentecost. The temple is being dedicated, essentially, and he fills the holy of holies. But who does he fill? Where does he fill? My heart and your heart, us. We're filled. Why? Because we are now the temple. Is this making any sense? I'm so tired that I'm just assuming that you're still all right. Um, It's extraordinary. Isn't that amazing? And so I said it in a slightly more kind of aggressive way this morning, and I shouldn't have done, but but essentially in my view, um, it's, it's impossible to be a fully alive human and to be the kind of person that God's calling us to be unless you're filled with the Spirit. It's not a charismatic spirituality preference. This way of life isn't just because we like it. It's actually what it, it's in the scriptures. To, to be holy, you need to be filled with the holy presence of God. But that's the assignment. It's to be a holy people, distinctively different, set apart, going in love. People who, who are filled with those streams of living water, flowing from the heavenly temple into us and through us into the world for the healing of the nations. And so Paul says in Ephesians, go on being filled. With the Spirit, it's present continuous tense, i.e. nor every day, because <laughs> we're cracked pots and we leak. And so go on being filled so that through you, through me, streams of living water can flow into the world so that the world can be touched by the holiness of God. It's contagious. It brings life. It heals. It transforms. It sets people free. And so you and I, it's, there's an onus on us to practice being filled with the Spirit. Not, it doesn't matter whether you like it. Actually, it's that's what that's the deal, and you know, I'm happy to talk more with you another time if that's the case. And so, this is where we find ourselves in the story this living temple dedicated by God, filled at Pentecost, 
called to be the, the point where heaven and earth interlock and overlap. So you want to meet with God? Find someone who is a follower of Jesus and hang out with them. Then you, that's the point. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. Right? Isn't that amazing? So you don't need to come to church on a Sunday to encounter God. You don't need to go to New Wine or Spring Harvest or any of these things to encounter God. You encounter God in particular ways in those places because when we gather together, there's an expectation and there's certain things designed to facilitate that experience and encounter again. But you can be fully present to God uh, wherever you are. You can be immersed in the presence of God in the car in a traffic jam, sat at your desk at work because you have the Spirit with you. It's in you. And you can say, God, fill me again. Because <laughs> I'm a temple. You're a temple. Which is why it matters what we do with our life. It matters, and we'll come to this in a moment, how we deal with that stuff around us that would pollute and rob us of our holiness. You, can't, you cannot allow things of death, things that are unholy, into a temple. You can't. Now, there's grace for us because we do, but we're not meant to. We'll come back to that in a moment. Turn just real quick to the last few pages of the Bible, um, Revelation 20 and 21, where we see this picture of the final vision of God's redemptive work finished and this vision of God's holiness played out. And if if the Bible begins with a garden temple, it ends with a a garden city temple. Um, Some of us last week at New Wine heard John Mark Comer teaching. Amazing guy. He wrote a book last year called Garden City. The best book I read on my sabbatical, worth buying. And he basically tells this story in this book. Uh, And this time here we have in Revelation uh, a similar vision. It's John this time, the disciple that Jesus loved, he says. He loves us all, but he's particularly fond of you. And uh, in his vision, he sees the whole world made completely new. The entire earth in this vision and revelation has become God's temple. And we see flowing from this temple, this city temple, Ezekiel's river and the healing of the nations. The trees are there. And uh, we see the whole of God's creation immersed in goodness and holiness. And anything impure and unholy is, is not, it's not able to enter the city. It says nothing can enter the city that's impure. That's a whole other conversation as to what happens to it. But this place is now established firmly forever. And you and I are able to walk in and out freely because we are princes of the kingdom of God, princesses of the kingdom of God. This is the thread that weaves its way through. God has sorted the problem. Um, And there'll come a day when you and I get to rest from our labors, but not now. Until that point, you and I have work to do, and it is to be the divine image bearers, distinctively different, holy, because he's holy, for the sake of the world. And so we cannot hide in holy huddles. We have to find ways as the church and individuals to immerse ourselves in it and yet remain holy. In what one writer calls involved distinctiveness. That's the call on the church. That's what we're about here. That's what we're trying to help you do all the time. And so, uh, what does this mean for us? Here's a few thoughts as we finish. Um, The first is that you need to let Jesus touch you. Because um, you cannot be this unless you let Jesus touch you and make you holy. And there's not a one-off moment, it's a way of life. Um, 
the, the crazy theological kind of thing is this, that God looks on you through the lens of Christ and so he sees you as holy and essentially says to you, that liberates you to live into that identity. So in and of myself, I'm not holy and perfect. I'm, in, I'm impure, I'm broken. You only have to spend three minutes with me and you'll know that. And if you were at New Wife two weeks, you very much know that because you heard me yelling at my children and getting grumpy with Kath. But, but the invitation of grace is, you, but, but I'm not meant to be like that. And actually, I've, I've, I don't have to pass a test. I just have to live into that identity through grace by the Spirit. And so every morning, the discipline is, God, help me live in your holiness. Help me live in your freedom. Let me live into that which Christ extends to me to be holy. And I, so, so, so the language in the New Testament is putting on holiness. Paul talks about clothing ourselves. It's a choice. You get up and you clothe yourself. It's your identity. What does the son have when he comes back? You know, the prodigal son who leaves the father and da 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 comes back. What's given back to him? All these symbolic things. The ring, the cloak, the sandals. These are all sing- signs of sonship, daughtership. And, and, and it's this idea you clothe yourself in holiness. You put it on. It's a choice every morning. You have to let Jesus touch you. The contagious holiness of Jesus. So every time you do something wrong, just come back to the Lord. Say, free me, set me free. How do you do that? Well, this is the spiritual disciplines. This is the spiritual practices, which we will talk about after the summer. But these things like gathering for corporate worship, personal prayer, studying, the, reading the Bible, hanging out with other people who are holy, these things help us get those touches from God. But Jesus wants to touch you. And every time he touches you, he transforms you a little bit more into the likeness of Christ. You become more fully you each time. The danger is that we stop doing that. We start to tolerate sin, start to tolerate the stuff that denies us our holiness, and uh, we mustn't do that. Um, Tim Keller says this. There's a quote, I think, Carl. um, He says, to be holy is to wholly belong to God. To be holy is to wholly belong to God. If you have not given God full access to every part of your life, you cannot be fully holy. He's given you everything. He won't force his way into parts of your life that you don't let him in. He he won't. He doesn't do that. Because you have to want it. It has to be a relationship. He wants it to be a loving response. Otherwise, there's no free will. And so the, so the question tonight for some of you would be, have you, have you given your whole self to God? Every part of you? Or are there certain things you do or don't do that you go, it's not up for discussion yet, God, sorry. Because if there's stuff you're tolerating, you're denying God glory and robbing yourself of your human dignity. Number two, um, at the same time as letting Jesus touch us, we mustn't let other things touch us. The danger for a grace community, a charismatic spirituality, is that we just we can become blasé with sin and the things that deny us of our holiness. Actually, throughout the scriptures, particularly in the New Testament, the language is, uh, uh, what we're told to do is to flee things. To flee impurity, to flee sin. To, it's not just about going, oh, hey, easy, keeping it there at bay, the language is flee. It's to flee. I was chatting to someone at New Wine last week 
who came for prayer. She's still traumatized by being in the Manchester Arena, the Ariana Grande concert. And she said when she heard the noise, she just ran for her life. But that's the picture. You meant to flee it. It's just instinct. Flee those things. Don't tolerate them. Tim Keller again, he says this. Uh, next, If you understand what holiness is, you come to see that real happiness is on the far side of holiness, not the near side of it. In other words, don't, don't just settle for drifting, you know, drifting or, or pressing into some holiness. Because the danger with that is you go, you, you get enough and you go, yes, it's good. But actually you're going to spend your entire life handling the battle over your life. Because there's this temptation all the time to just, just a bit of false comfort there, a bit of idolatry there. Go back to that old way of life then, just occasionally. And then, and then you're like, oh, no, and then you come back again. And, oh, you know, and, and it's not until you just flee all of that and just go for utter holiness and just throw your entire life, give your whole life to God. And this is a lifelong journey for all of us. It's a posture of heart. It's not a scorecard achievement. Uh, that's where true freedom is and the far side of holiness when that's not, that's not a battle anymore. That's the call. And finally, number three, go touch the world. Go touch the world. Streams of living water will, are, are poured out from God into you and me, the temple, the church, his people. But it's streams of living water flowing in and through us it's for the world as well as for us it's not enough to just receive to be blessed we have to give we have to be a blessing we have to let it flow through us and we have to be confident that that he who's in us is greater than that which is around us right we have to be confident that the holiness that he gives us is contagious that when we touch the least the lost and the lonely the lepers of our culture that actually God does something transformative through that. And it's not the job of a church leader to do it on his own or her own. We help, we, we, we do it as individual followers, but it's not my job as a church leader. My job as a church leader is to equip us for the works of service. It's all of us. It's not the job of an evangelist. You know, it's not enough to say, well, we run a food bank as a church and I bring my food on a Sunday and they give it out. That's not enough. That's not what you're called to do. You're called to touch people. And not, not necessarily literally, that would be weird sometimes, but your life should touch theirs. And so here's the rub, basically. If you can't give a name and a story to situations, then, then you're not touching people. Do you know their names? Do you know their stories? I, I would say start by literally your street <laughs> or your, your bit of the office. Do you touch the world? It's desperate for a touch of Jesus. There's nothing else that's going to set them free. Nothing else is going to change them. And so Isaiah has this crazy encounter with God. And so flip back to Isaiah 6. I forgot to say this this morning. So aware of the time. But um, Isaiah 6, verse 8. Then I um, heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. 
That's his instant reaction to being experiencing this God-given holiness. Is send me. It's, it's, it's love's compelling power. And, and the Lord is saying to his church, I've made you holy. Not just for you. That, that allows you and I to access you know, the presence of God and we'll dwell there forever. There'll come a day when we don't need to worry about the world around us because it's all been made holy. But between now and then, I'm sending you in my name and in my power to touch the world. So who are the least, the lost and the lonely? We could come up with a long list, I'm sure. But it's not enough to say the church reaches out. We have to touch people. You, me, all of us. And here's what happens when you do. It is that God honors that. So one of the ways you become more holy is by serving the unholy. It's just a weird paradox of the kingdom. The people who are most gloriously alive are the ones who've laid down their lives most in service. I watched it last week. The team that were with us from, New, uh, from All Saints serving at New Wine, they, they loved it. They just loved serving. <laughs> There's joy in giving. When you pour yourself out as an offering, God fills the void that that creates. He honors you. He does. The people who are most like Jesus are the ones who do the things that Jesus did the most. And the people who sit in holy huddles and hang out in church and get filled again and another sork and another song. Da, da, da. Great. You, they, they're lovely, but, but there's, not a, there's not always that edge to them where they, they get it. How wonderful to touch the world and be able to tell stories of holiness being contagious, people coming to life. Some of you are here because someone touched you. I am. I've told you this story before. Paul Taylor, Christian Union president at college, engineer. Me, like, I know it's hard to believe, but I was a lean, mean athlete. I was a Cambridge University rower. I was renowned for my um, sporting prowess and my drinking prowess. I was the guy that, you know, the kind of squeaky clean Christian crew were a bit like they were praying for. They were all a bit terrified. Paul came and touched me. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that. Well, maybe someone else would have done. Some of you got that story. You get the point, right? Let's stand. <laughs>